Hey there, one quick message. Hope you're enjoying our podcast episodes so far. We're interviewing these entrepreneurs to help inspire you and other listeners to build and grow your businesses. So if you like the podcast and know someone else who could benefit from listening, then please pass it on. Thanks again for tuning in. And now on to the show with Sarah Shaw. Legally Blonde, we called up to the costume department and they said, oh, well, if you can bring some bags down right now, we're looking at a ton of stuff. So I literally threw everything in my car and drove down there. I didn't know how huge it was going to be, but it really helped to grow the company from half a million in sales to a million in sales. Today, I have a consulting company called Sarah Shaw Consulting, and I work mostly with women, but I do have some men that seek out my advice as well. And I help people either take their product from totally just a new conception idea and help them develop that and bring it to market. I also work with people more often who have a product. It's not that hard these days to kind of figure out how to get your product made, either in America or overseas. So most people come to me, you know, hey, I have a garage full of stuff and my husband's about to uh, make me go get a job or throw it all out if I don't learn how to sell it. So I mostly work with people teaching them how to sell their products into stores, how to get the media to write about them, bloggers to do reviews. And then uh, one of the big things that we do that other companies like myself don't do is help people get their products to celebrities for free. So how did you get into that? Kind of a funny story. I had accessory companies for years. I had my first handbag company for five years and I grew that with, I mean, zero experience, made every mistake under the sun. And I ended up having to close that company because I lost all my financing. My investors pulled out after 9-11. So I ended up closing that in late 2002 and I just couldn't recover and kind of destroyed fourth quarter. <laughs> but when I launched my second company a couple of years later, after I'd been kind of goofing around and I'd really sort of tried to take the idea of Amazon. Amazon at the time was really only selling books and had kind of started to get into a few other products. But I decided that I thought that their model was good. And so I launched a website selling other people's products who, you know, other designers who didn't have their own e-commerce site because in 2002, 2003, not that many small designers had an e-commerce website yet. It was pretty complicated to get going. I know, hard to imagine. Imagine there still was no Google really, you know, so um, I know most of you guys probably grew up in the Google world. So it's, you know, even my kids are like, what? No world with Google. And so we started selling, I had a business partner and we were selling other people's products and getting it to celebrities and getting in People Magazine and really driving the traffic to our website that way. And it was really working. And these are kind of all the tools that I had learned with my first handbag company. And so we get huge hits from being in People Magazine, you know, sell 2000 of something if we get would get it to Jennifer Aniston, something like that. And it was really working. And these young designers were so excited. And obviously I wasn't a tech genius and, and I was wasn't uh, Jeff Bezos. So anyway, once I, that business kind of ran its course, my business partner wanted to open a store and I had no interest in that. 
we split up and I took the business out myself and started producing my own products again. And people really started calling and asking me how I did it, right? They wanted to know, you know, if I would come consult with them. And I just thought, you know, it was one or two little consulting gigs and went to work with some women I knew in Los Angeles just from, I mean, I didn't really know them very well, but we knew each other from trade shows in New York. And so I started working with them kind of on the side a couple times a week while I was getting this other business of mine going. And I really liked it, but didn't think much about it. And then in 2009, some friends said to me, hey, you know, you should really turn this into a business. People keep calling and asking you to consult with them and you could make a business out of this. And I was like, that is the dumbest idea I've ever heard. Who's ever going to pay me to teach them how to do all this stuff? And they're like, ding dong, you know, life coaching is huge. People pay people $100,000 dollars to teach them how to create a business and a life. And so I kind of let them force me into it. It was one of those moments where someone's telling you what to do and you're being resistant to it and not being a yes person, right? It's always better if you want to be an entrepreneur, always err on the side of saying yes. And I knew that, but I just wasn't doing it for myself. And so I decided to investigate this a little bit. And I ended up hiring a business coach to teach me how to launch a service-based company because I had no idea. I mean, I could sell products in my sleep, but I didn't know anything about how you set up a sales page or get people to your website or you know describe what it is that you're selling. And so I worked with this business coach for about six months and then launched my business in late 2009. And I've been doing it ever since. Okay. I guess you talked about the handbag company a little bit. Do you mind jumping in a little bit more into detail, kind of what you learned and when that got started and when it went wrong, how you knew it was going to go wrong? Sure. I worked in the film business doing costumes for movies when I got out of college. And I did that for quite a while and kind of thought I'd live and die in the movie business. And when in 1997, I got this idea for a handbag. And it just kind of came to me when I was looking at different magazines and stuff and thought, wow, if I did this idea this way, instead, it could be a handbag. And it was just this kind of random thought. And I sat on the idea for about a year. And a boyfriend at the time was an entrepreneur. And I didn't had never really known any entrepreneurs because I'd been working in film for so long. And he was asking me if I ever had any ideas. And I told him about this, what I thought at the time was stupid handbag company. And he, he sort of dared me to get it going. And which was, I'm grateful the day that he did. And I started making these bags at night and on the weekends because my job was very time consuming. I probably was working 70 hours a week in the film business. And you're in Los Angeles at this time? I was in Los Angeles. Yeah, I lived there for most of my adult life and um, so far. (laughs) And so I kind of did this at early mornings and and asked a couple of people. I'd already had two businesses at this point. I had started a business in 1994 called Rags to Order, and it was a made-to-order clothing company that I had with a a fashion designer in downtown Los Angeles. And we made mass-produced clothing for movies. So if a movie needed, you know, 2,000 military uniforms, we were there to make it for them. We were a non-union factory, obviously, in downtown. And most movies in Los Angeles are union-based, meaning that they have to use all the union-based sewers, right? So we figured out kind of a loophole and way around it. And we did this mass manufacturing. We made clothes for Matrix 2 and 3. And the Wind Talkers uh, was the code talking movie. I made a bunch of clothes for Ocean's Eleven, things like that. But that wasn't a real business. 
genius because we got 50% up front and got 50% upon delivery. So I didn't really know anything about margins or payment cycles or, you know, how you actually run a business to make money. And then I had another business that was related to the film industry. I owned wardrobe trailers and we rented those out. So we had them built and then which they were quite expensive, but we it rented them out immediately. So every month the money would come in and we'd pay our bills and there was just a little bit left over for us. So I kind of thought that's how business was. <laughs> when I started, I was really naive and you know, I'd always had a job. So I didn't really know anything about entrepreneurship besides babysitting. So I started this handbag company and my friend who I had the clothing company with sort of pointed me in some directions. You know, you should talk to these guys. I don't know anything about making handbags. I'm going to be really unhelpful, but go talk to these few guys downtown. Maybe they can point you in the right direction. So that was kind of all the help I had. And you know, I got to remember there was a minimal internet at back then in 97. It wasn't like I could hop on now and Google manufacturers or talk to anyone in China or figure anything out. So it was really kind of hands-on and old school. So anyway, it took me a few months to figure things out. And I started selling these handbags out of the back of my car, really. And people just loved them. It was very different. It, I made this bag with pinking shears, which are those little zigzag scissors. And they were like little shopping totes that just people could carry or throw over their shoulder or whatever. And they just were really unusual looking. And they kind of took off like wildfire. And I got my first big break. I showed them to anthropology back when they only had 14 stores. And they have over 80 or 100 now. And the buyer really liked it. And it, when I found out that they wanted to buy them, that to me was kind of my signal, you know, that it was time to leave the film business and really take a chance on myself. And it was really scary. But I also had these two other companies, you know, that I was making money from. So I knew that I could survive, kind of eke by and pay my bills because those businesses were, again, related to the film business and they weren't, it wasn't like getting a regular paycheck all the time. So over the five years that I had my handbag company, I started out pretty well, actually, in the beginning, I guess I did 120,000 in my first year, which is pretty remarkable. I don't really actually know that many people even today who start clothing or accessory line and could make a 120,000. I'm relentless. Yeah. <laughs> and, and what year was that? I know you said first year. I knew this was probably early 1998. I think I started it towards the end of 97. And so no buyers were on email. I was barely on email. You know, I'd probably been on, I'd probably been using a computer for like two years at that point. And there was constant contact was just getting started sometime around then. And they were really the only kind of, you know, email marketing system. And there was Yahoo, but stores weren't on, it's not like you could Google, you know, hip trendy stores in San Francisco and get anything really, you know, like you didn't use the internet for that then. Yellow pages. Exactly. Yellow pages. But you also had to know how to find the stores. So this was really like buy the magazines, look through magazines, you know, make sure because they always listed the stores, they weren't crediting people's websites. So it was much easier to find the names of stores back then. I mean, 99% of the time now, if you're looking at credits in a magazine, it's to the company's website. But back then it wasn't. So it was kind of easy to start to build a list of stores that you wanted to approach. Oh, yeah, that thing looks cool. My stuff would look cool in that store, too. And, you know, it's in Arkansas or wherever it was. Right. So it was really getting on the phone, calling people, mailing them pictures of my bags and sending letters. And, you know, so it was really costly. Right. Because you not the phone calls, but mailing stuff to people by snail mail. Right. You couldn't really I don't even think until probably 2001, most store buyers weren't even on email. Email. 
believe it or not. You know, so you'd go to these trade shows and you, you know, want to contact them and you actually had to pick up the phone or send them a letter. <laughs> so, so anyway, over the years, I learned everything on the run. I had to kind of learn it on the fly. I didn't know what anything was like, you know, when you have a product-based company, you need to have a line sheet or a sell sheet or something with pictures and information. But, you know, the only way I learned about that was I would go because I was in Los Angeles. So I could go across the street from where my office was, this teeny tiny, you know, 250 square foot office that I had to the California Mart, which is a huge building in Los Angeles that has tons of showrooms in it. And buyers come there a few times a year, you know, people who are West Coast ish and all these other designers would have postcards and all these things down at the bottom. So because I wasn't allowed upstairs, they made you show a badge in those days to get upstairs. And so I would just go into the lobbies of all these different buildings and take all these postcards. And if anyone had a line sheet example, and then I didn't know how to use Photoshop or anything because it was so new and really expensive and complicated. And I would hire these guys, friends of friends who were these, you know, what I thought tech geniuses back then. And they would make the line sheets for me. And I was like mailing them copies of all these things. And it it was pretty funny when you think back on it now, always saying to clients, you guys don't know how easy you have it. It's like literally, I mean, I'm very proficient in Photoshop myself, but I job all these things out to guys that work for me. But I still, it's like, you can get the line sheet done in two days now and emailed out and all the stuff that you couldn't do in those days. And you can be in touch with hundreds or thousands of buyers with the click of one button, right? You send a mass email and boom, it's done. Yeah. Well, could you talk about a line sheet real quick though? So people who don't understand fashion, what that is? Sure. So a line sheet is, can be one page or multiple pages, depending on how many products you have. And it's really just a simple form that shows a photo or a drawing of your product, depending on whichever is the best way to show it. And it has a style number and the wholesale price on it. And then maybe a, a short little description. So they all vary a little bit. A lot of times clothing will be just a line drawing of the outfit, just so that people can really see the lines of the clothing. Uh, sometimes like I've had companies where I've sold one product. I own a patent on a closet organizer for handbags. And when we did ours, it, we just had a line drawing showing how it functioned. And then we had just little swatches, little squares of, of the fabrics printed with the style number because we thought that that was an easy way for people to order. So it kind of, they vary from design to design and business to business, but it's generally that. It's kind of like an architectural drawing for a house almost? like It can be, yes. Yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. So over the years, I ended up getting sales reps. I was part of multi-line showrooms in Los Angeles, New York, Dallas, and Atlanta. And we, my showrooms carried my full collection every season. So they always had, I don't know, sometimes there'd be 60 handbags in each collection. So it was a lot of, a lot of outlay of money all the time, just with the samples that I would have out. You know, usually we had about six sets of samples. I got a lot of press in magazines. And so we had to have a set that we were constantly sending to magazines all the time. There's probably $60,000 a year was just out in samples at any given time. So, you know, you can see how money can become a real problem when you have a when you have a product-based company. And so it took me a couple of years. At the end of the second year, I kind of thought I was actually going to close my company because I was just drowning. I didn't really know how to price my products correctly. Turned out my margins were just 
totally wrong. And I was really not making very much money. And so the profit margin was really small. And I thought at that point, oh, I'm just going to close my company. I'm going to sell everything I have. If I can sell it all, even at cost or whatever, I'll probably only be out $10,000. It'll be a $10,000 mistake. And I can decide if I want to, you know, start it again and do things properly this time around. And so it turned out instead, I had some investors that approached me and I decided to go that route instead, which was kind of a mistake. I should have probably closed and got rid of everything and just had this one $10,000 loss and then started again. But I didn't. And kind of during the time that it took for them to write the business plan to get other investors and things like that, it was about six or eight months. And during that time, I incurred way more debt because I had I was paying interest on all this money that I'd borrowed from the bank and kind of a big cluster. <laughs> and it ended up really costing me probably another $50,000 out of my pocket and loans and things like that. But we eventually got investor money and it seemed like things were starting to turn around. And and then 9-11 hit about a year and a half later. And obviously it was September. So fourth quarter was just dead. And so things quickly went south. But during the, the middle of building this company, it really dawned on me that you, know, you would have thought having come from film that I would have thought about getting my products to celebrities, but it just never occurred to me. And I was having dinner one night with the costume designer that I'd worked with for many years. And she was complaining to me that she was doing a movie and that they were forcing her to use Donna Karen's clothes on the cast. And she was complaining that, great, it was free and everything, but that it wasn't really right for the character and that she had to go to New York and look at all these clothes and make it work somehow because the studio was taking away a bunch of her money that she would, could have used to buy things because they were getting a lot of it for free. So while she's telling me this, all of a sudden it, I realized, well, if Donna Karen is starting to give clothes to movies, maybe I should give my handbags to movies. Clearly, she's got bazillions she was spending on marketing and advertising advertising companies to tell her what to do. And if this was their next move, I should jump on it. So I quickly figured out how to contact the celebrities. And I didn't have a Rolodex or anything at the time of how to contact people. I mean, we weren't, weren't legally allowed to contact them directly when I worked in film. So we always had to go through the casting company. And so we had no direct access to these celebrities. So it wasn't like I could just go back to my old files or anything. And there's a website now these days called contactanycelebrity.com. And you can pay money and join. It's not very expensive. I think it's maybe $30 a month. And you can get access to the contact information for pretty much any famous person in the world. But that didn't exist back then. And so we did some research and kind of had to call the agent agencies and find out how to get in touch with people. You know, again, a lot of phone work and busy work that we had to do and ended up getting products to celebrities. We often didn't hear from anybody, but then they started showing up on pages of magazines, In Style, Us Weekly, different kinds of magazines, Women's Wear Daily and all these people magazine were showing pictures of these celebrities with my products. And it actually turned out to be an amazing thing. I didn't know how huge it was going to be, but it really helped to grow the company from 
half a million in sales to a million in sales in about two years. Again, I was relentless. I mean, I, you know, the minute we would get a, see a picture of a celebrity, you know, wearing one of our a bag in, in a magazine, you know, we would somehow photocopy it, get it into an email. Cause at that point we were on constant contact and we would get that out to our mailing list and offer them coupons and buy this bag and, you know, get 30% off or whatever. And it really started working. People were buying the bags in droves. And then we heard through the grapevine that they were looking for handbags. I don't remember how we found this out, but for Legally Blonde with Reese Witherspoon. And so we called up to the costume department and they said, oh, well, if you can bring some bags down right now, we're looking at a ton of stuff. So I literally threw everything in my car and drove down there. I mean, obviously I was living in LA at the time and they picked out like 20 or 30 of my bags and I just left it with them. And then I never heard from them again. So I had no idea whether they were using them in the movies or what happened. And then Reese Witherspoon, there ended up being a publicity shot for the movie. And one of my bags was sitting right next to her on this lounge chair. And that kind of set my company off. I mean, Nordstrom's was so excited. We sent that to Nordstrom because we'd been trying to get them to place a big order. They ordered about $150,000 worth of those bags. And then we told Sony pictures about it. And they were so psyched that they actually made mini movie posters and sent them all to Nordstrom to put inside the bags when they mailed them out because it was internet only. And so all that kind of stuff really snowballed and really propelled my business kind of to the next level. And, you know, I ended up getting into Bloomingdale's and Neiman Marcus and Saks Fifth Avenue and all the big department stores finally wanted to buy from me, which had been really difficult. You know, they'd done small little tests over the years or ordered bags for 10 stores or something like that, but it had never been a full rollout until it seemed like I was more famous at that point. And so what year was that? That was 2000 and 2001. Okay. So that's the kind of the height of the bag? Yeah, that was kind of at the height of the business. And then, you know, we were doing really well until 9-11. Okay, gotcha. And then after 9-11, is that when you just slowly saw it or did it just kind of go off a cliff? I mean, before... No, I went off a cliff. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Um, yeah, no, I mean, I had another round of outside investors at this point, and it was a really big handbag company that did about 80 million a year with Walmart. And they wanted to partner with, you know, more fashionable and kind of higher class handbag company. So they invested in my business and I had this really killer arrangement with them. They kind of blundered through the whole fourth quarter with us, but then they, I was at a trade show in Dallas in January. I was starting to make my trade show round. And I got a phone call from them just letting me know that that was the last minute that they were investing in me and that they were all done, that they had, you know, like $12 million worth of stuff sitting in freighters outside the LA port because all after 9-11, they inspected every single boat and every single box that came off of it. I mean, it was taking months and months and months, you know, so boats were sitting out there, food was rotting, orders were getting canceled everywhere. It was really bad. And so they just said, we're done. That was it. No more money, you know, and I had payroll to make on Friday and everything. So I came back to LA after I'd been crying on the floor for three days. I had, luckily for me, I had actually had, so it was kind of a funny story. I had a cover story in the Los Angeles Times on the front of the business section the week before. Um, so it was the Sunday paper. We came in to work on Monday morning and, you know, we had an answering machine and it was filled with messages from all kinds of investors and bank managers and all these people who wanted to 
to talk to me about giving us money, even though this article was all about the investors that I already had. So I kind of thought the whole thing was rather silly because I, st- I still was not a bit super business savvy woman at this point. I mean, we're talking, you know, four and a half years in and I only knew what I knew that I had, had been self-taught. I mean, I hadn't still hadn't had any formal training and my accountant is really good and he tried to teach me certain things, but he couldn't teach me how to be intelligent about listening to a phone message of potential investor, right? So anyway, we we just took down all these names and numbers and just like left the list because I didn't know what to do with it. But we just took them all down and I left for Dallas. So as soon as I get back, I started looking through the list to see who these people were because I thought I need money now, right? I have no investors. I saw a name of a gentleman that I had met actually a year before who had helped Kate Spade's handbag company grow from 26 million to 70 million. And I had been introduced to him by a mutual friend about a year before but I couldn't afford his consulting. It was $5,000 a month and that was way out of our budget. You know, you have to remember this was back in 2001. So that was a lot of money. (laughs) And so I called him and just said, hey, I want to find out more about your business. And I said, I have a real problem, told him what was going on. And he said, great. I said, I have to meet with you today. It was probably Wednesday or Thursday. And I said, because I have to close my business on Friday if I don't get any money. Like that's how dire it was. I don't think I'd showered probably in three days. At this point, I went to go meet him. I'm not joking. Hair in a ponytail, no makeup, in my sweatpants, hadn't showered in a few days. And I was like, here's my profit and loss sheet. Here's my balance sheet. You can see what I'm owed and what I owe. And I've got to get back to the office in an hour. So let's get this going. And he just looked at me like I was such a wackadoodle. And I was at that point, I think I'd been crying every day and you know didn't know what to do. I'd already fired my sister, who was my publicist. And she was our in-house publicist. I was like, sorry, you got to go. I can't afford to pay you. And after the second, and I had three other employees that I was thinking I was going to have to let go of on Friday. So anyway, it turned out I sat there and he and his business partner mulled over my paperwork while I sat at another table, you know, and they kept kind of slyly looking over at me like, I'm sure I looked like a ragamuffin. And they ended up investing in the company and giving us some money right then and there to float us for a couple of weeks till we sorted things out. And their plan really was to get overseas investors. It was to hook me up with a factory in Korea and move my production out of uh, the US. I'd been manufacturing in LA the whole time and it was expensive. And so of course it was pushing up the price of my bags, which I would say they probably retailed from 150 to 450 and they wanted to get everything down like under 250 at retail. So they thought, you know, if they could partner me with a factory in Korea and obviously this man knew them all because he had been making the Kate Spade bags overseas at that point for years years and had opened up all these stores for her in Asia and everything. And I'm thinking, wow, he grew her company $50 million. If he can just grow me to 10 million, I'll be so thrilled, right? So anyway, it turned out in the long run that they couldn't raise the money and they couldn't get the factories to invest. Nobody wanted to invest in anything American at that point. Our country just seemed too volatile in those days. And so I ended up telling all my creditors, you know, please don't, I don't want to file for bankruptcy. So please don't send me to collections. If you start all start sending me to collections, I am going to file bankruptcy and then you'll get nothing, but I'm going to do my best to pay you back as much money as I can. Cause it was also my integrity was on the line. And I didn't know what I was going to do for the rest of my life at this point. And I, you know, didn't know if I'd get another product line going and I didn't want to ruin my relationships with all these people, you know, 
I mean, I wasn't thinking UPS and FedEx necessarily, but I wanted to, you know, I didn't want to go bankrupt. And so I got everyone to agree to give me time. I think I asked for about six months and I actually ended up manufacturing bags for some online stores that I used to do business with. And I, you know, would make bags for them and I would know, okay, I'm going to make $5,000 from this order and then I'll divide the money between everybody. And so I kind of, I, that's kind of what I did for six months was I just produced things. I sold stuff off. We did this massive sale on our website. I had about 7,000 subscribers in my constant contact. And these were just people who'd shopped online or been to my sample sales or somehow got on our list. I didn't even, we didn't have like a pop-up or anything saying get on our list in those days. I didn't, those didn't exist. So we started sending out emails to people saying we divided the list, I think into groups of about 500 or a thousand people, you know, Hey, you've been selected at random to receive 40% off at Sarah Shaw handbags and here use this coupon code. And we would get like $10,000 worth of orders. Then we'd send out the next one. You've been selected at random to receive 50% off. And we went up to 80% off with the different lists. And in six weeks, we did $80,000 back in 2002. And that was a lot of money and unbelievable because I'd probably never done more than 20,000 in sales a month online at that point. And that was Christmas. <laughs> so we did $80,000 worth of inventory gone. And that was kind of how I shut down the business because I had all these investors and I wasn't legally allowed to put anything on sale or say anything about the business being in trouble. So, cause they were actually trying to sell my company. And so I had to make sure that everything looked clean and copacetic and like everything was fine. So that's why we did these, you know, kind of random emails to people saying you've been selected at random and then, you know, sold a bunch of stuff to TJ Maxx and, you know, just did kind of like a slow sell off kind of on the down low and as much as I could. And it wasn't that hard. I mean, there was no social media or anything that I, you know, that could help me. So I ended up paying all my creditors 70 cents on the dollar and I felt good about it. They felt good about it. And once I started my next accessory companies, they all did business with me again. A lot of them made me pay up front in the beginning, you know, or pay by card. But then after about six months, they started to extend me credit again and realized I was paying all my bills. And so, you know, kind of walked away with my integrity intact. Right. What like, uh, I guess, lessons or advice could get from running that first business and where you are either like either personally or business wise, as far as advice, what, what you had to go through during that time? Well, I think it's really important to understand business, you know, which I didn't, I had no idea. And the most important thing for starting or having a product-based company is really understanding your margins and what all goes into your cost of goods sold. And the cost of goods sold, for those of you who don't know, is all the raw materials and the labor that goes into actually making the physical product. So, you know, if you're manufacturing in the U.S., you've got, you know, maybe you live in California, but all your products, raw materials are coming from New York. So you have to take into account the freight as well, you know, that it costs to ship the goods from New York to California to your factory. Or maybe you make everything in California and you live in Mississippi and you've got to ship all the finished goods to yourself in Mississippi because you ship out of your garage or something. So you have to make sure that you account for all those freight fees because those can really eat into your profits if you don't. And just likewise, if you manufacture in China, granted, they say, oh yeah, here's your product. It's $5 out the door. And you say, oh great, my product's $5. But you have to remember to add in the freight to bring 
bring it to America, and then the duty and taxes that the U.S. Customs charges you. And those are really hard to figure out kind of until your product lands. They don't really want to tell you what it is. Sometimes it's black and white, but usually it isn't. So the thing you really want to make sure of is what the profit margins are and if you can be profitable. You know, what happens, I think, is people say, oh, I'm going to retail this for $20, but they don't realize that it's costing them 10 If you only have the room to double, if you're going to just sell it on your own website, you could probably get by with that. But if you want to start wholesaling it, you realize if something costs you, let's say $5 landed, you can wholesale it for $12.50 and then it's going to retail for $25 or maybe $30, depending on who's retailing it. So you can see sometimes it can be anywhere from six to eight times the cost. But when it gets to retail, (laughs) you can think about that the next time you're buying something. And so that's general markup rules is anywhere from six to eight times the cost. And you want to make sure that you're really aware of all those things. The other things, too, I think that were really hard lessons for me are setting up the type of business that you have. So I had a corporation, I had a C-Corp for my handbag company, and I took on investors, right? So they each had shares in the company and everything. But for me, unfortunately, I had filed the trademark under the company name. I hadn't even trademarked my name when I first started. But when I was bringing on investors, I trademarked the name so the company would be more valuable. And it was the attorney for the company that who was doing all this, he was writing up all the shareholder agreements and all these different things. And he said, it was him who said, we should trademark your name. And so the company trademarked my name, uh, which was Sarah Shaw Handbags. And so unfortunately, what happened was when the company closed, the trademark actually died with the company because the company owned the trademark and I didn't own the trademark to my own name. And so the investor were really angry because I, you know, went out of business and lost all their money. And we're not talking a lot. They probably each lost a max of five or $10,000 because I had lots of investors. And I don't mean the big company, but the individual friends and family. I lost over 100000 of my own money. So, you know, while I wasn't laughing at them or anything, I understand five or $10,000, nobody wants to lose it, but it's not like they had to sell their home or anything. One of the things I learned is you always want to trademark the name of your company under your own personal name so that you always own it and it gives you leverage and then you can license it to your corporation so that you can always retain the rights to that trademark or unless you sell the rights to it and at least you're making money on that as well but because of that I could never use my own name I could never trademark my own name again because they threatened to sue me if I ever did so um, (laughs) that's what I was gonna ask if you could do that but yeah okay then that makes sense no. And and it's available. And I could trademark it, but I just don't really want to... Not worth it. It's not worth looking over my shoulder for the rest of my life. Yeah. yeah. So the other thing too, that you really want to make sure that you're aware of when you have a business is just kind of how all the money flows, right? What is your cash flow situation? So whether you have product or service-based company, you really want to make sure that you've taken a look at how the cash flow will be. Because like I was saying before, in product-based companies, it's really heavy cash flow up front because you have samples. And then sometimes because of production schedules or different things, you have to make a lot of product prior to selling it. And obviously, if you're making it yourself, it's another story. But if you're using factories and depending where they are in the world and what the materials are and things like that, sometimes you have to produce the goods a few months ahead of when you'll actually be selling it. And it can become very costly. You know, sometimes we had $200,000 
$10,000 worth of inventory in our warehouse that we hadn't sold yet, which is clearly why I had so much inventory to sell off when I was shutting down the business. So those I think are the two main things because A, with no money, you're out of business. And if you don't know how you're making the money and the flow of the cash essentially makes it really hard to be profitable. Okay. Yeah, no, those are some awesome tips on the product-based business. And then do you want to, we'll just jump to your consulting business a little bit more in our last moments here. And I guess you can talk about, said the difference between product and service. If after doing, dealing with all that product is the service, why service might've sounded better to you? Well, it does because you don't really have a lot of outlay of cash, right? But you also have to come up with products that you're going to sell, right? They're technically virtual products, right? Or sometimes they're physical. Like if you're sending out workbooks and video training programs or things like that, right? It takes time and money to do all those things. You know, you have to look at that as well. You know, when you're setting up service-based company, how much time and effort goes into building the program that you're thinking about selling? Is it just going to be PDFs that you send out, right? That could be a, a lower price product, you know, midline, maybe it's audio recordings and some PDFs that you put together. And then maybe the top tier is video training, right? So you've made these videos, but you've got to get them edited. You need some kind of intro and exit thing to it, introduction and, you know, and you need to get people to edit it and fix it up for you and maybe create graphics. And so you kind of want to take into consideration all those moving parts that go into building something. And then obviously, if you have personal one-on-one coaching with people, then it only takes your personal time. You don't really need to do anything you know, physical for that. And so there's different levels of how you can run a service-based business as well. So I think it's really, you know, I run all of those. I've got a multitude of different programs and one-on-one coaching and a bunch of different DIY programs that I've created over the years, you know, that might, that just sell themselves. People can just self-serve on my website for those things. Sometimes I run live coaching programs, partly DIY, and then part live group coaching calls with me or something like that. But I think if you're thinking of setting up a business like that, it's wise if you're not 100% sure how to do it, you know, either take a DIY class online that can teach you how to do it. There's tons of coaches out there that teach you how to set up service-based companies now. Digital Marketer or Frank Kern probably have the best uh, or Jeff Walker, if that's your style too. And, you know, and really learn how to do those things, how to write the copy. You know, if you're a good copywriter, you can do a lot of that yourself. You can also, a lot of the ways I learned how to do those things is I just look, I got on every single person's mailing list in the world who I thought was a good uh, business coach or life coach or, you know, some kind of something that related, I could relate to the way they talked and the way they wrote. And I really liked the way their sales pages looked. And I just copied them. You know, you can just copy all the text and then you can kind of replace it with yours. So at least you have the right layout because these guys have done been doing this for years. So there's nothing wrong with looking at the people who have been doing it better before you. It's kind of like if you want to find a good headline and you're in fashion, look at the covers of fashion magazines, you know, Elle and Mary Claire or something, even Glamour. And you can look all these up online too. You can see magazine covers and look at how they do their headlines, you know, and if you can copy the headline and then just replace it with some of your words, these guys have already paid, you know, millions of dollars to their advertising firms, right, to come up with these concepts for them. So you kind of don't necessarily have to reinvent the wheel. There's lots of kind of backdoor shortcuts that I've learned over the years and people have advised me to do over the years. So, you know, don't be afraid to do that. And so like today, what's your day-to-day like and 
how much time you spend, you know, working on your business and helping others? Good question. I actually had ignored my own business for a while. <laughs> I've just been really into my clients' businesses. And I don't know, maybe about two months ago, I woke up one day and I was like, God, I haven't been working on my business at all. And I've just been so busy. And I realized that I love working on my business. I love being on podcasts like this or doing interviews. And I also have my own podcast that I've had for about eight months now. And sometimes I forget, you know, <laughs> to start searching for people that I want to interview review for my own podcast. Um, I obviously am always looking to get myself into magazines and get articles written about me, but I've been neglecting that as well. So I've really been on top of all of that a lot recently. One of the things that really helped me kind of get back on track was I've used this website called MindMeister for a lot of my clients and I lay out different mind maps for them, not necessarily how to build their business, but if we're doing different email campaign series or things, I use this to show them the sequences. If the person does this, they get these emails. If they go that left, they get these emails. If they don't like that, then they get these, you know, so I tend to use it for different reasons. And I decided to do one for myself. And I put a huge big green square in the middle with how much money I wanted to make in the next 12 months. And then I just did this whole mind map about how I was going to get there. And with the five or six different arms coming out of how I wanted to build my business further. And so every week I have a goal of how many actions I'm going to take towards each of these five spindles coming out. And I do those. I you know pitch myself I to be on other people's podcasts, pitch myself to magazines, find people for my podcast, working with a bunch of affiliates who are selling my DIY celebrity program. I'm working on finishing up a book proposal and that should be done next month, which is exciting. And, you know, so there's lots of different things going on all the time. And in, in between all that, I work with my clients by email. I, I have two days a week, every other week that I do coaching calls. So one week is kind of a down week for phone calls. And I have much more time to work on, on my own business and just spend a couple hours a day answering emails to clients. Sometimes we're in the middle of a big launch for a client or a big PR push or things like that. So sometimes my time gets thrown off in different ways by what's going on. But I would say, you know, in general, I probably work about five or six hours a day and I'm a single mom and I've got twin nine and a half year old girls. And so I like to be able to spend time with them and take them to camp and pick them up after camp and take them to school and music lessons and all the other things that, you know, mommies have to do. <laughs> Yeah, no, I understood. And yeah, I was going to bring that up. I mean, as far as being a single mom, why doing all that? I mean, they're nine and a half. So was the 2000? They were born in 2008. So okay. that was right before the consulting business then? Yes. And I mean, at, at that point where I guess you kind of were done with the handbags and I mean, was there anything worrisome about at that point in time before get, jumping into the consulting? Well, after the handbag company, I had a couple other, I was mentioning that one company I had that was kind of like a mini Amazon. Uh, <laughs> that's how I like to equate it. And after my business partner and I split up from that business, I actually had patented this closet organizer for handbags. And so I decided to go full force with that in 2006. 
And so for two years, I took everything that I had learned in my handbag company and then in this little company she and I had, because I really learned a lot about selling online and building websites and learned Photoshop and all these things that I you know, learned how to use constant contact and all this stuff that I had never learned when I had my handbag company because I had people doing it for me. And so I really became a DIYer in probably 2003 and learned all these things over, over three years, really, from 2000. 2003 to 2006. And when I launched my second official company, it was called Simply Sarah, because of course I couldn't call it Sarah Shaw. Luckily, my dad said to me, he's like, you know what, even if you can't call your company Sarah Shaw, the fact is you are Sarah Shaw. So nobody can take that away from you because it says it on your birth certificate. And um, he's like, you can call your company one small Joe or whatever. It still can say designed by Sarah Shaw, even if you can't you know, use the name officially. And so in the first two years with my new company, Simply Sarah, I was selling one product in 12 colors and I did half a million dollars in sales out of my garage with a 16 hour a week part-time assistant. And I didn't have my kids yet, but obviously I got pregnant in 2007 and I was quickly put on bed rest. So I did a lot of it on my laying down with my laptop on my belly, which was ginormous. I was relentless. I had nothing else to do really except sell this product and really see if I could make this go. It was the only business I had at the time. I still had my wardrobe trailer business. So I was making some money from that, but I didn't have my uh, movie making clothing company anymore. And movies had all kind of moved offshore for a long time. And, you know, big movies were made out of the country and we didn't really have a business anymore. So just kind of gave that up. And so, you know, it was kind of do or die because I couldn't fully live on my income from my wardrobe trailer rentals because I had two business partners with that. So the money was always being divided and we were building another trailer in 2005. And so that up a lot of our cash flow and things like that. So I was really dependent on this business. You know, I didn't really have any other way to make money. And, you know, then all of a sudden I get married and I'm pregnant and, you know, realizing, you know, that I, I really need to bring home the bacon. So what drove you at that point? And I was going to say, I mean, when you had the kids, were you, did you not think about getting a job? Because I feel like that's what most people might have kind of gone towards. I kind of think I'm unemployable. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I can't really imagine working for anybody. You know, even when I I sit on the board of a school here where I live now in Colorado, and I'm constantly wanting to quit just because they don't run it like a business and I can't make them do what I want to do. <laughs> so I have to just kind of sit by and do the things that get assigned to me. And, um, you know, I have to make the decision. Is it worth it? Can I make a difference? And so I did not think for one second about getting a job just because my business was doing so well, you know, I mean, for a business out of the gate to do half a million dollars in two years, I mean, you have to remember there was no Facebook yet and certainly no Twitter, or Instagram. It's, it doesn't seem like that long ago to me because I, I think God, my kids are nine and a half. You know, this was 11 years ago and I've just been through so many different phases of the internet and social media and, and seeing how that's changed business and the world. And I go sometimes when I think about it, 
it, I, I'm like, you know, God, my grandmother didn't even have a refrigerator, right? She had, they had an ice box <laughs> and the ice man delivered the ice, you know, and that just seems like the dark, seemed like the dark ages to me when I was a kid. And so there's so many things, you know, my kids don't understand, like the first time they ever saw a payphone, whatever in their entire life was last summer, you know? So it's kind of this funny moment in life when you realize that the time that your business has evolved over the last 20 years that I've had my own companies and the different things that have come up over time and have made business so much easier and in a sense harder, right? Because obviously when I had my handbag company, I was probably one of, I don't know, 10,000 companies that had a website at that point, maybe not even that many. I don't know what the data was from back then in 2000. But I mean, now there's like over 80 million e-commerce websites. You know, when you're thinking about, you know, some people are like, oh, I'm just going to start my website and I'm going to put my shingle out and people are going to come. You have to remember, they got to sift through 80 million plus websites to find yours, you know, so that, you know, having, getting PR for yourself, getting your products to celebrities, getting in magazines, getting yourself on television, whatever it is that you can do to, to single yourself out and shine a big light on your head and say, hey, here I am. It's really important these days because it's otherwise you just fall into kind of the abyss of another one of the 80 million plus websites out there. I definitely understand. Well, like I said, well, thank you for coming on and sharing your story. I guess what's the best way for people to reach you either if they want to find out more about you in general or about, about your business and how you, you might be able to help them? Sure. You can go to sarahshawconsulting.com and you can find out every single thing you ever wanted to know about me or my programs there. And we have services starting as low as $47 a month going way up from there for private consulting. And all my social links are on there. More of a Facebook person than anything else. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, send me an email. Happy to answer any questions. Okay. What was the best email address to reach you at? Sarah at sarahshockconsulting.com. All right. Well, like I said, we'll have all that info in the show notes. And like I said, thank you for coming on and sharing your story. Yeah. Thanks for having me. All right. Thanks, Sarah. Do you consider yourself a helpful person? If so, would you be willing to help support me and my team on Patreon so we can keep bringing you this awesome podcast? Every little penny will help. If you are willing to help, go to millionaire-interviews.com forward slash Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Or check the link in your episode notes below. One of the many perks of supporting us on Patreon is that you can instantly schedule a call with me to help you with your current or future business. If you check out the beginning of episode 119, you can get a glimpse of what you're in store for. So to sign up for this awesome opportunity, go to millionaire-interviews.com forward slash Patreon.